If you don't have Israel My Glory coming into your home, I encourage you to take advantage of our free gift subscription offer. It's available to anyone that has never subscribed. You'll get a full year at no cost, six beautiful and informative issues of Israel My Glory. You can contact us at foiradio.org to get your free subscription of Israel My Glory. Again, that's foiradio.org. This is the Friends of Israel Today. I'm Steve Conover. And I'm Chris Katolka. And today on the program, we're going to be looking at the viability of a one-state or two-state solution. And we can't do that unless we understand the history of the two. And that's why I'm having Soren Kern from the Gatestone Institute come on to share a little bit about the history of the one-state and two-state solution. He's also going to be enlightening us on what's happening in Europe when it comes to anti-Semitism and anti-Israel rhetoric, and then apples of gold. But first, the news. In clinical trials, Israeli biotech company Bonus Bio Group successfully transplanted 11 bone grafts created from the fat tissue of individual patients. This had a 100% success rate in every patient. Bonus Bio Group CEO Shai Moretsky told Reuters, for the first time worldwide, Reconstruction of deficient or damaged bone tissue is achievable by growing viable human bone grafts in a laboratory and transplanting it back to the patient in a minimally invasive surgery via injection. Bonus Bio Group could potentially redefine any surgery connected to our bones or cartilage. Think about this. There could be a day in the future when your knee replacements are grown in a lab from your own fat cells. Now that's Israeli innovation that's blessing people all around the world. Last night I had the opportunity to go to an event in New York City that was hosted by the Philos Institute. Uh, We were looking at a a new video called, uh, a documentary called, Eyeless in Gaza. And it was all about how uh, journalism has been suppressing the truth about Israel um, and giving a free pass, really, to the issues happening in Gaza uh, with Hamas and with some issues with the Palestinians. And, And at the end of the discussion that we were having with some of the journalists, one of the major issues that we came across was this. How do we communicate the truth about what's happening in Israel Uh, to a a group of people that are accustomed to receiving news and information in 140 characters uh, through their Facebook page or through Twitter. It's it's much easier to see a picture come across the screen um, and and to feel sympathy for that uh, individual who was injured in war or something of that nature, but to actually understand the truth and the facts on the ground, the historical facts of things happening in Israel, this requires some history. And that's usually where people begin to glaze over. But I want to challenge you today as we're going to be opening up our conversation here with Soren Kern, who's a senior fellow at the New York-based Gatestone Institute and a regular contributor to our magazine, Israel My Glory. I want to challenge some of you as you're listening. Let's learn a little bit about history and what's going on so that we can be better prepared to defend what's happening in Israel and to really have an understanding of the facts on the ground. So, Soren, thank you for joining us today, my friend. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. 
Yeah, Soren, so in the news, you know, we hear a lot about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And even just recently, former Secretary of State John Kerry was pushing for Israel to recognize a Palestinian state, uh, to see Israelis and Palestinians living side by side through a two-state solution. But, you know, my question is this, is this viable? Is it possible uh, to to see a two-state solution come about? Yeah, well, um, in my opinion, the two-state solution is a as an idea whose time has passed is absolutely unviable at this point, and it's largely because of um, Palestinian um, divisions within the leadership. As you know, the Palestinians are divided between the Fatah branch and the Hamas branch, and until there is really a coming together uh, of these two groups, the unified Palestinian leadership, um, there's not even any basis for Israel to come to some sort of a two-state solution with the Palestinians. So I think really this is the problem that the Israelis have faced during all of the Obama years. And the Obama um, administration, by coming out so strongly in favor of the Palestinian side, really disincentivized the Palestinians from getting their own house in order and really becoming a um, negotiating partner that the Israelis can actually work with. Yeah, you know, one of the major issues that I'm seeing, too, is not only just the, the, the people that Israel, it, Palestinians and who they're trying to build a state next to, but also the way that the Palestinians are raising the next generation. You know, the way that it seems to me a two-state solution isn't viable for another generation. If they started today enacting, uh, you know, a curriculum that promoted peace and not hate towards Israel, do you think that's true? Yeah, I think at fundamental, at the base level, it's impossible for Arabs, Muslims, to come to some kind of an agreement with, uh, with Israelis or with the Jewish state. Because according to Islamic theology, if any territory has ever been under Islamic domination, it's forever Muslim. So this is really the crux of the issue with the Israeli-Palestinian question, is at some point, um, parts of the Middle East, parts of Palestine were under Muslim domination. And for now, there to be a Jewish state, it completely negates the whole fundamental basis of a large part of Islamic theology. And that is why the Palestinians are divided, particularly the Hamas group. They know what the Quran says, and they know what the Islamic theology says, and they are not going to ever um, agree to uh, recognize the Jewish state in the land of Israel. So let's step back for a moment and provide a little context for our listeners. Soren, can you help us understand a little bit about what a two-state solution is? I'm sure we, we hear this all the time. Journalists talk about it. Politicians talk about it. But can you help identify a little bit uh, and define a two-state solution? Sure. Way back in the 1920s, after the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, the last really caliphate in the Middle East, um, the area of what is today Israel was, came under British control British administration. It was called the mandate. And at that time, there was an idea for a two-state solution, essentially. Um, what is today the state of Jordan would be a homeland for the Arabs, and what is Palestine or Israel today would be um, the homeland for the Jewish people. Um, over the years, um, obviously through wars and through the War of Independence in 1948, through the Six-Day War, um, a lot of this terminology has really changed. And what is a two-state solution? What is it meant by that today? is essentially that um, rather than um, the Palestinians having their state in what is today Jordan, um, the idea now is that Israel gives up essentially half the territory, would be considered the West Bank or Judea and Samaria, Gaza Strip, uh, parts of Sinai, 
to create a Palestinian state there. So really the definition of the two-state solution has really changed over the last 100 years. What's fascinating to me is that throughout the history of Israel becoming a nation, not just what happened in 1948 at its declaration, but in the decades prior, you know, both a one-state solution and a two-state solution were offered. Early on in the 1920s, a one-state solution, as you were saying, were offered. It was a one big area for the Jewish people that included the West Bank and even uh, Jordan, what is known as Jordan today. But later on, by 1947, the UN partitioned the land, making a two-state solution, a state for the Jews and a state for the Palestinian Arabs there. You you know, what was amazing to me about all this, Soren, is that the Jews accepted all of it, both both deals. They were accepting of both of the the deals that were offered to them. Sure. And even much later in history, during the um, Bill Clinton administration, um, you know, the Israelis offered the Palestinians essentially 95 or 99 percent of what they were asking, and they rejected it. So the Israelis, I think, historically have been um, willing to come to some kind of an accommodation with the Palestinians. But again, I think this issue of Islamic theology is really what is preventing um, the Arabs from accepting the idea of a Jewish state in the heart of, you know, what's considered the Arabian heartland. Because it's not just about the West Bank to them. What you're, what you're arguing is it's about all of the land, That's essentially. Right. And we see um, uh, all of the Palestinian propaganda, and I'm not just talking about from Hamas, but I'm talking about from the Palestinian Authority, who's essentially supposed to be the um, negotiating partner with the Israelis. Um, all of their maps show Palestine being all of these, what is Israel today, um, And, you know, you mentioned earlier about the indoctrination of young children for this hatred towards the Jews. Um, This begins very, very early, begins through television programs, through schools, through textbooks, and it's conditioned an entire generation of Palestinian Arabs to um, not only to hate the Jews, but to see the Jews as subhuman. And I think that so much damage has been done. I mean, so many hundreds of thousands of youth have been indoctrinated by this um, really you know, demonic uh, ideology of the hatred of the Jews, uh, that this really can't be reversed, um, not in our lifetime. My friends, we're speaking with Soren Kern, who's a senior fellow. If you're just joining us, he's a senior fellow at the New York-based Gatestone Institute. And as I said earlier, he's also a regular contributor to our magazine, Israel My Glory. Uh, Now, we were just discussing the issue of the two-state solution, but, you know, Soren, one of the things that I'm hearing a lot of is that both Israelis and Palestinians alike are are looking to beyond the two-state solution and wondering if there is a one-state solution. What does that mean uh, when when Israelis and Palestinians are talking about a one-state solution? Well, the one-state solution would just be the idea that um, Israel annexes parts of the West Bank, um, under interna- international law, um, um, Israel is considered an occupying power at this point. And um, what Israel did, for example, um, with the Golan Heights to annex them, so that basically that area in the northern part of Israel is part of um, the land of Israel. And so one of the ideas with the, with the one-state solution would be that Israel goes ahead and annexes um, parts of the West Bank and that the Palestinians uh, essentially would be citizens are offered some kind of a citizenship um, in Israel, but under, um, you know, under Israeli 
uh, particularly military domination. Yeah, you know, I was reading an article not too long ago in the New York Times, um, and it was an article written by Mahmoud Abbas, who's the president of the of the PA, the Palestinian Authority, and his son disagrees uh, with him on the two-state solution. He believes uh, in a one-state solution, and the reason why is because he believes that's where Palestinians can find the most economic freedom. Is that really what's at the core of this idea of a one-state solution, is that Palestinians realize they have the most security and uh, an economic freedom within the state of Israel? Well, most certainly they would. Um, it's clear that the Palestinian territories are completely dysfunctional, um, and it's largely an internal problem through corruption. Uh, Palestinians receive billions, hundreds of millions cumulative billions of dollars from European countries and from the United States, and a lot of that money has been uh, squandered or, you know, siphoned off into bank accounts in different parts of the world. But I think really what um, the Palestinian incentive of a one-state solution would be the idea of demographics, that over time Palestinians believe that they can, um, you know, have higher birth rates and outnumber over time uh, the Jews, that the Jews would be essentially um, a minority within the state of Israel. So it would be the idea of creating a Palestinian state uh, over a long-term period through, through, through demographics. Now, Soren, with just 30 seconds left, is this a viable solution, a one-state solution? Well, I think that's the only solution right now is Israel needs to, um, I mean, the two-state solution is completely inviable at this point until there's really a change of heart, a fundamental change of heart um, on the part of the Palestinians to recognize the Jewish state. And um, they um, are not anywhere near uh, ready to do that. And I don't see how Israel could, in those circumstances, really um, even fathom a two-state solution. Yes, and when we are pushing as uh, as uh, the United States um, in the previous administration and the UN, the EU, when we're pushing for this two-state solution, it really is to the detriment of Israel, wouldn't you say? Well, it is. And um, so far, it seems uh, the Lord has intervened on all of this, and he's protecting his people. And ultimately, the Lord is sovereign on these issues, and we we have to trust that uh, he is ultimately in control. Amen. When we return, we're going to switch gears here. We're going to ask Soren a few questions. Why is Europe so anti-Israel and anti-Semitic, and is there a future for change there? So stick around, and we'll be right back. There are few people in modern times that understand the Israeli-American relationship more than former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren. In his New York Times bestseller, Ally, Ambassador Oren tells the story of this unique relationship from the perspective of a man who treasures his American identity while proudly serving the Jewish state he has come to call home. This memoir is a testament to an alliance that was and will remain vital to Americans, Israelis, and the world. Order your copy of Ally. You can do that at foiradio.org or by calling our listener line at 888-343-6940. Welcome back, everybody. We are speaking with Soren Kern, who is a senior fellow at the New York-based Gatestone Institute. I'd like you to check out gatestoneinstitute.org. You can find his uh, writings there. And uh, also, he's a regular contributor to Israel My Glory. So if you'd like to read some of Soren's work in Israel My Glory, you can get a free one-year subscription by just going to foiradio.org. Soren, uh, we're turning our attention to Europe now, and, um, and, and this is an area of your expertise. Uh, 
Is Europe as we know it today anti-Israel? Well, elements of Europe are. I think uh, what is happening is through mass migration from the Muslim world um, into European countries, um, you have a resurgence of anti-Semitism in um, almost all countries in Europe. This anti-Semitism is primarily being fomented, I think, by Muslim minorities. And as a means to keep the peace, I mean, there's a great deal of fear uh, among the leaders in Europe of riots, of um, maintaining control over these um, restless um, you know, Arab minorities in their countries, that their foreign policies in Europe are really geared towards pro-Arab, pro-Palestinian positions to the detriment of Israel. And I think it's really based on fear of um, you know, upsetting um, the Muslim minorities in European countries. So we do, in fact, see a rise of anti-Semitism. Of course, among the left, the far left, um, you know, there's a very active um, movement in Europe for BDS, for delegitimizing the state of Israel. But I think what really worries me is really this rising anti-Semitism that is being imported through migration. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about migration, you're talking about the refugees, the Muslim refugees uh, that are coming from Syria, Yemen, and, and areas like this. Am I right? Yes. Um, this is fomenting the problem. It's really, you know, making the problem a lot worse. But really, since the 1950s and 60s, there has been mass migration from North Africa and the Middle East to Europe. Uh, essentially, after the Second World War, you know, a whole generation of European males was wiped out. And so a lot of these people from the Middle East were brought in to run the factories. The idea was always that they would leave, you know, they would go back to their homelands, but they stayed. So what we really have now is sizable Muslim minorities in almost all major Western European countries. Um, Some cases, second and third generation, you know, Muslims now. And with this recent, you know, move, this this recent... um, wave of more than a million people coming into Europe from the Middle East has really exacerbated, I think, um, this problem. And we're going to be seeing a lot more jihadist attacks on Jewish installations, on Jews, on synagogues. Uh, it's going to be increasingly risky for Jews living in Europe. And we see um, uh, quite a number, thousands, I believe the last numbers that I saw, some 8,000 Jews left France uh, in 2016 many of whom are going to Israel. I'm glad that you touched on that, because one of the questions I wanted to ask is this idea of democracies, Western democracies, is that we want to embrace this idea of welcoming in uh, many. We want to welcome in all people. Uh, But at the same time, we want them to assimilate into our culture over a period of time. Are you seeing that at all within the Muslim communities happening around Europe? Are they assimilating into European culture or are they isolating themselves? Yeah, this is a very, very big problem in Europe. Um, Generally, waves of immigration are positive. Um, The United States, almost everybody in this country at one point or another comes from an immigrant background. Um, There was always the idea that people who come to the United States would integrate, learn the language, um, and become American. This is not the case with many, many millions of Muslims who are in Europe. And, And so Europe has a massive problem on its hands of how to integrate and assimilate some of these people. And um, I don't think they're going to be successful. Really quickly, can you just, is there any sign of hope at all in Europe? No, I, I'm very, very pessimistic about Europe. I think Europe, by allowing so many people into the country in such a short period of time and um, people who have not been vetted, um, 
I, I am very afraid that we're going to see much more jihadist violence in the months and years ahead. Um, the European authorities, I believe, have really lost control over the situation. This is why, as Christians, we have a hope, my friends, a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, that even in hopeless situations like what we're seeing in Europe, as Soren is telling us, we have hope for what Christ is going to do as the Prince of Peace when he returns. I want to thank you, Soren, for being on the program and, uh, and, and enlightening us on the one and two-state solution, giving us a little historical background there, and then also shining a light on what's happening in Europe. I want to make sure that my listeners go to the Gatestone in institute.org. There you can follow Soren Kern and the writings that he's doing. And again, at our magazine, Israel My Glory. Soren, thank you so much for being on the program, my friend. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Now, Apples of Gold, a dramatic reading from the life and ministry of Holocaust survivor Svi Kalisher. Something happened recently that was hard even for me to believe. Not long ago, my wife was in hospital. It's not a place where you can speak openly about faith in Christ. There are many Orthodox who believe they must watch those who visit to prevent them from sharing the gospel. Many people I met, however, were open to hearing about the faith. One day I met a man who was a patient, as my wife was. He, more than anyone else, wanted a long conversation about Christ— As a visitor, however, I had to be careful. Please come back, he said. I will do my best, I told him. Soon my wife returned home from the hospital. I did not forget the sick man who wanted to know more about the Savior, but I could not figure out how I would be able to make the time to go to the hospital. I did not want to break my promise to him, but I knew it would be difficult to speak about salvation in that place. Several days later, I became very sick. My wife quickly called an ambulance which came and took me to the hospital. And to which of our many hospitals was I brought? To the same hospital where I was supposed to visit the sick man who wanted so desperately to know about salvation through Christ. And into which of the hospital's many rooms was I placed as a patient? Into his room! When I arrived, he was greatly surprised. He looked at me and said, You said one day you would visit me, and here you are. I am sure this is not the way you meant to arrive. He was certainly right. You are here, the man said. But of course it was not your will to come in such a way. I knew, however, that it was God's will because now we would have all the time we needed to talk about faith in Christ without worrying about the Orthodox throwing me out. His first question was, How did you come to know the Lord? I told him I learned about the Lord from the Holy Bible, not from the rabbinical commentaries. Now look around, I told him. Most of the people here worship the rabbis and do not realize it. They respect the rabbis so much that they listen to them instead of following what is written in God's word. So where is it written in the Bible about this one in whom you have believed, he asked. I opened my Bible to Isaiah 53 and began reading, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I told him much about Jesus, our Savior. We had a very long conversation, and I was able to tell him everything he wanted to know. I'd like to thank Soren Kern for being with us today. You can find his writings at GatestoneInstitute.org. To listen to past programs or to connect with us, visit foiradio.org. That's foiradio.org. Call our listener line at 888-343-6940. That's 888-343-6940. The Friends of Israel Today is a production of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. We are a worldwide Christian ministry communicating biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while fostering solidarity with the Jewish people.